I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at KindFarmsInc, all one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is KindFarmsInc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is RYAN10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today we have a super special, exciting episode with truly an actor that has changed my life and that this podcast would not exist without a Rufus Sewell. You know him from Man in the High Castle, A Knight's Tale, John Adams, and too many other projects to name. I love watching him work and he's taught me so much. I saw him in a play called Rock and Roll that changed my life and set me on the course to staying in New York City. I love Rufus's work and everything I've seen him in, like Victoria, it's just a masterclass. He's such a rich and nuanced actor. I have so much love for your brother. Here it is. Rufus Sewell, welcome to An Actor Despairs, brother. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's lovely to, lovely to be here. Nice to be talking to you. I'm out here on my veranda hiding from my um, seven-year-old. And I'm out here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in my uh, little pseudo-desk area. Nice. <laughs> yeah. set of pages there. Yeah, I got I got a little uh, Bukowski, a little Bukowski, Buddy Holly, Bukowski, Buddy Holly. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird smoking aesthetic. What's I didn't. His what's his epitaph? It just says, "Don't try." Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go all the way or something. Okay. Yeah, but uh, you know, brother, man, I, I I say this from the bottom of my heart, and I don't say this very often. Is uh, man, you completely changed my life without even knowing me. I. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to be an actor very young and, and I discovered your work quite young. Obviously, like, you know, Night's Tale was it. And I loved your energy and you're one of the greatest actors in the world. And I really followed you. And I'm liking this very much so far, by the way. Carry yeah. on. Well, there was a moment in my life and this is how I'll tell you, you know, this podcast and in my quote acting career or whatever is becoming of it would not exist without you is I had to make a, a heavy decision as a lot of actors in America have to make about when I was going to college to study acting, whether to go to LA or to go to New York. And I always, I was up for John Adams. I almost had a scene with you in that. And really? What was yeah. it then? Yeah, this is, this is my Richmond, Virginia CrossFit shirt. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, I, I've, I've got a stories to tell you about that, John. Oh, we'll have to talk about that. But I came to see you in Rock and Roll with Brian Cox. And 
I sat like pretty close. I got really lucky, lot of seats. And that performance changed my life. Watching you on stage, I was, was like, it in New York? Was yeah, it New York? I didn't get to the, see the London one, the New York yeah. one. And I was like, if I could do one one hundredth of what Rufus did in this, that would be sufficient for me. Oh, so, so man, it would well, not... the, truth, the, the, the answer to that is to get those roles, because I haven't been able to do that in other stuff. It's because it's having the opportunity, isn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah, I guess a lot of this is that, but, you know... You know, work begets work, and sometimes you have the control over what you do, and sometimes we're just trying well, to... Interestingly enough, you say work begets work. I didn't... I was unemployed for the longest I'd ever been after that particular job, right? Really? This is not, not um, a kind of complaint. Well, everything I say is a bit of a complaint. <laughs> There's a complaint sewn through everything I say, I like to think. Subtle, sometimes. Um, but... I didn't work for a very long time. And in my experience, whenever I've done something that kind of could be perceived as changing the game for me, um, the only immediate recognizable manifestation of that is silence. Like after a bomb goes off, wow. nothing. Um, and I didn't work for a very, very long time. And this, that's why I've tried to get out of the loop of work does beget work, but not on your schedule. Yeah. Because... I didn't really get anything, obviously, from rock and roll until last year and this year. Really? And the three biggest jobs I've done recently, recently, I'd say Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Not big, but in terms oh, of... Oh, Rachel Brazain's a close friend of mine. Oh, right. She's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, Judy, and The Father, which I've just done, these three jobs came from me doing rock and roll. No way. And... So if you just keep on putting it out there. What are the, the odds that I bring that up? Oh, that's so serendipitous. Yeah. Well, don't worry. I would have. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because it's very much what's going on with me at the moment. It's just this realization that, yes, the only, the only problem that we have in terms of driving ourselves crazy is expecting results at the time when we imagine they would happen yeah. in yeah. the way that we imagine. Because things do come from what we do. It's just much more chaotic and messy than we'd like it to be most of the time. You know? Yeah, there's no, there's, it's hard to make sense of the chaos. And that's the one thing that I've kind of thrown myself at the don't mercy of. Well, to quote Bukowski, don't try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got a Bukowski tattoo right here. Oh, man, it's... But it, it's interesting, you know, because one of the reoccurring themes on this podcast is the separation between good acting and great acting and good actors are people that have a personality that is affable and they can make a living doing that. And great actors elevate a character and no other actor or actress in the world could play it in the way they do. And in every role I've seen you in the nuances, the choices, the specificity, what you bring is so outstanding. You're one of the finest actors I've ever seen and watching you work brother it's it's a masterclass, you know. It really is. And oh, that's this is so it's un unbelievably nice of you to say that. I I, mean, I, I I mean every word of it. Well, I but I think that the fact that you know every once in a while I'll get a role where I really get a chance to do what I feel I can do. Yeah. Rock and roll was an example of that. Yeah. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, small though the part was, was an example of that. They come along for me every few years. And it's not often that we get the chance to show what, what we have. No. Well, you get you typecast, know, you know. I'm, I'm sure yeah, you dealt exactly. with that. Like, 
for me, one of the challenges most of the time is trying to fashion what is available to me into something that I can put something into. <laughs> totally. Because you know, I have to live in the real world. I mean, people often say, oh, why don't you do this job? Why don't you do that? You can only really work with what comes your way. Um, but you saw one of the things that was at the time a full expression of me, yeah. which some people never, ever, ever, ever get the chance. Yeah. So when I'm tempted to complain about them not coming along every year, <laughs> I'd like to remind myself that they, I mean, I had an interesting life lesson that took many years is that in 1995 or so, or 93, I played one of the lead roles in a Tom Stoppard play called Arcadia. Mm -hmm. Right, it wasn't written for me, but you know, I got the role. I was pretty inexperienced at the time. Directed by Trevor Nunn, who also directed Rock and Roll at the National Theatre. But at the time, I didn't know that that wasn't just what life was like. Yeah. Um, in terms of gratitude, so there I was. I was doing this other show called Middlemarch at the same time, which they worked out, you know. And my level of gratitude for that, in comparison to what I feel about much more minor things now doesn't really make sense on the graph. It's like I've now adjusted. We, there's a thing we do with our eardrums. So like, you know, we compensate so that our head doesn't explode. If we can hear a blade of grass rustling, yeah. if we didn't have some way of compensating, we'd die when a plane went over. Yeah, so we have yeah. a way of kind of bringing everything to a median. Yeah, an equilibrium of sorts. Yeah, yeah. and I've learned to do that because um, I was lucky enough 10 years later, or possibly longer, to get the chance to do that again, to play a lead in a new Tom Stoppard play directed by Trevor Nunn, only this time I'd had 10 years experience of not every fucking play being like that. Yeah, and not having <laughs> that. And not having that yeah. and being like, I will be grateful for this. Yeah. Whatever. It, it takes a lot of learning because our human nature is just to accept what we have as normal after a while, you know, to good, well, bad, and different. Well, speaking of human nature, if you don't mind, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in the UK and your parents were artists or your father was, correct? Yeah. I mean, my parents were artistic. My dad was an artist. He was also an animator. Um, you know, he, he, he came from Australia um, in the early 1950s. He was much older than my mum. And I was talking about this yesterday, actually. He, um, he died when I was quite young. There was quite a lot of mystery. I mean, I remember it very clearly, but there was mystery about his, you know, pre-England years, to us at least. I wow. found out more because I have a half-sister and his mum recently died and left us a trove of photos and stuff. That he, he spent his childhood wasting away in hospital with a bone disease, missed his education and became very, like, um, scrawny. Came out, taught himself to read and write and became a bodybuilder and a wrestler. No way! And then he came over and I, I didn't see, I hadn't seen any evidence of this until recently, these photographs of this Australian beach he-man <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and entering all these body beautiful competitions. Then he became an artist and then he came to England in the 50s. Um, and then he found his way into Soho, into that kind of jazz heat, bongo beat milieu yeah. in the 50s. And ended up in the animation business, which, and then in the 60s, he met my mum. So he was involved with the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. He did the Lucy and Sky of Diamonds sequence to that. He was, he was never had a lot of money. Things slipped through his fingers. He had a, 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 a studio in Wardour Mews in Soho we, where we would spend our weekends after wow. him and my mum split up. But our life was divided between a cottage in Wales where there was no electricity which they bought for £300 in 1969. Oh, my God. Um, very much like with Nell and I. 
um, and it had no electricity and no water and we would go there when we could and kind of go wild and then I spend the rest of my time between kind of suburban Twickenham and then Bohemian Soho was yeah. my dad. So a kind of mixture of all of those things. We weren't we were quite poor, but in my way I was very privileged just because of I had this kind of rich life. Yeah, the culture and the amalgamation of it all, I can yeah. only imagine. So I mean, I like to think it's made me an imposter everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. It's not so, so much feeling like I belong, but you know, I'm lucky to be, I'm not quite deserving of being in any of those, you know, and I think that's a great passport as an actor. I, I'm an imposter and everyone's a fucking imposter. I, I, I think we have to be. And that's how we, the better imposter you are, the better you can be at this sometimes. Well, it's a, I think it's more a matter of just admitting that everyone's, everyone's renting, you know. No yeah, we're all full of sure, shit. It's all, <laughs> uh, <laughs> It just it's just a matter of how far back the delusion goes, you know, whether you believe it wholeheartedly or not. Um, and my mum is artistic, plays jazz piano. She's still around. Um, and she ended up, you know, raising us on her own after my dad died. But even before then, we mm -hmm. were very poor. But, you know, she was very inventive in the kind of jobs that she had. Um, she worked in bars. She became a social worker. Wow. She always said that her training in working with disturbed children was was me and my friends. Um, <laughs> a bit of a self-own from yeah. my mother. It was only a joke. Um, and, you know, she had all these kind of things that she would do to, to make ends meet. And we grew up, you know, really quite poor, but at the same time, quite artistic. Were, were you um, aware of that when you were growing up, that you were, you know, was it, you, you were a bit below the line of poverty? Or were, did you yeah. not yeah, well, very much. But it was kind of mixed up for me because I was very well spoken. Yeah. And we had a piano. I mean, it was a dodgy old piano, which I'd scraped Rufus on with a fork, um, to much to my mother's evident displeasure. Oh, when I was a child. I um, scraped boobs on my table and got in big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you win. My yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and we had, you know, my mum, you know, was a very inventive cook. So, you know, so we had quite um, uh, quite a bohemian, but very poor. I was on, you know, my mum was on benefits, yeah, um, widow's pension. I had free school meals. We were, you know, we were we were poor, but at the same time, I didn't come across that way because of the way I spoke. So when I was at school, I think a lot of people regarded me as quite posh, totally. even though the people who regarded me as posh were generally much more wealthy than I was. So it was kind of odd feeling of being. You know, it was it was two confusing worlds. signals. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, and that's so amazing. Yeah, uh, terrible as a child, but useful as an actor, probably. Yeah, because you you were kind of like a Clark Kent of sorts when he went to school. Yeah, but the wrong way around. Yeah, <laughs> touche. <laughs> so then, talk to me. Being in the Soho, you know, when it was before it was really kind of destroyed, not destroyed, but taken over by capitalism. You know, when it was really yeah, well, it was a, it was a really extraordinary the '60s Soho of Francis Bacon and you know Dylan Thomas he used to drink in the French House, which is a pub, very famous artists pub in Soho that they only serve half pints in. And we would, me and my brother, would be outside. We very much part of my childhood was the Soho kind of vibe, which was very. I don't know if you're familiar with the TV writing of Dennis Potter, but it's like a very you know, the old whores would be hanging out the windows and the yeah. slabs of like similar to um, the, that era of New York, but not quite as not dangerous in the same way. Okay. But definitely seedy. And it was the epicenter of the film world. And 
um, the prostitution world and the, you know, all of that, the kind of, that's very, so that's where my dad's studio was. Cause that's it. And that's where we would spend our weekends. It's very exciting. Yeah. We go out quite late at night sometimes. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so that was our weekend world. And we'd stay up all night watching Hammer Horrors with him on, on cushions in front of his telly, eating terrible foods. And then we go back to more or less um, suburban, you know, London um, wow. with my mom. And, and, and were you seeing things in the West End? Like what, what activated the theater interest for you? Was there a moment? No, I don't think so. For me, it wasn't so much theater. For me, the thing that activated me at first, I mean, though I did love the the life around there and my dad's attitude towards people i remember i have strong memories of having to wait around in the street for half an hour while my dad sat on the ground and talked about life with his old homeless guy and it was really irritating at the time when i was a kid but it was a good example you know to be set just in terms of not judging people from their exteriors um and at the advent of punk rock yeah 100 club on, oh, on the best when i was there for all that like early 70s you know um but for me the thing that got me interested was was film tv wow it was watching charles lawton and anthony hopkins and you know these things that had an effect on me when i was very very young i remember loving charles lawton when i was a kid and peter Ustinov, and oh. loving um anthony hopkins yeah. And I recently worked with Anthony Hopkins, which was wonderful. And my brother said, do you remember that when we were very, very young, we saw that film Magic and you were very struck by it. And I'd forgotten that, that when I was very, very young, I think it might have been one of the first times I'd ever seen what I thought acting was. Yeah. And being really profoundly struck by it. And with Hopkins, it was a kind of spatial, with a T, kind of distance behind between the front of him and behind the eyes. Yeah. That there was an interior universe there yeah. that was moving one way and it was kind of reflected in shadows. Totally. He wasn't showing, you know. I don't, I mean, you know, and you wouldn't say that about Charles Lawton. I loved him too and Peter Ustoffer. There were all kinds of actors that I loved, but they were all kind of transformative actors. Yeah, same. That's everything I attach to. And yeah. I'm curious then, how did you assimilate yourself into the scene? Did you start doing theater classes or what were I your steps? I did theater at school. Um, I did theater at school and I, <laughs> I had an experience when I was very young, formative in the worst way. Oh, you, know, you got to tell me. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong, I don't think, but then I would say this, with wanting to do drama to start off with because you're a show off yeah i mean totally. what's in, what happens is that people's reasons for doing things sometimes develop i don't think i do it for the same reasons i did when i was very young but when i was very young they did rumpelstiltskin at school and um i think you know probably when i was seven or eight something like that and I got the part of Rumpelstiltskin in the school play, but I was bigger than anyone else. So they had little shoes coming out of my knees, like when Peter Spenner's place. <laughs> I'm there. loving this. And I remember my, my first line. It was, hello, little lady. Why do you cry? And um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say I was a fucking sensation. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about my first Willie Loman, man. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Rumpelstiltskin was my yeah. Willie Loman. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, like people's parents, you know, always remembered me. You know, it was like one of these things that had a profound effect on me anyway. Um, 
and people would say hello Rumpelstiltskin to me for years. Yeah, yeah. And I think about 15 years ago, I was already old as fuck, okay? 15 years ago. You look 32 to me, brother. That's why I'm going to get you to play Bond at the end of this. <laughs> 15 years ago, I was in Twickenham, which was my old hometown. Yeah. And I didn't have my, my bank cards, but I, but I needed some money from my bank. So I went into the Lloyds Bank and asked if I could speak to one of the actual humans there. And I sat and I said, listen, I don't have any proof, but I'd really like some money. And she said, all right, Mr. Rumpelstiltskin, I'll see what I can do. No way! <laughs> Um, that, it never it ends. Better, better than the money. Yeah. God. Um, so, yeah, that was my first experience. And I just very quickly, I, I felt at school that I was very indisciplined and messed up. You know, my dad died yeah. young and we went through all this stuff. And I think in many ways it kind of messed me up and I, you know, acted out. And I was very indisciplined, I think, and had a problem with lateness that I came to address later on what that was about. But... At the time, the, I found that I could be disciplined. Not, um, I, I could have discipline about this thing. It's, I could get up in the morning for it. Do you, you, know? do, you, do you feel like the, you know, the punk rock kind of established some anti-establishment in you? Or do you think it was just more reactionary of just the chaos of, of your childhood? It's a little bit of both. Yeah. I, I still got a little bit of that, you know. Um, you know, and I like it. <laughs> yeah, me too. But as long as it's not cutting off your nose to spite your face. I yeah. mean, you know, um, that for me, it transpired that actually it was quite a good way of avoiding failure by yeah. not giving 100%. Because if you didn't give 100% and it fucked up, you could say, well, I didn't fail because I didn't really try. I and you can that. do that unconsciously. Yeah. But anyway, getting ahead of myself a bit, when I was at, um, at school, I was doing plays and things um, and I ended up kind of pulling out of it at school because it was not my kind of thing. It was like, are we talking grammar or drama school? Well, not, no, pre-drama school. Pre-drama school. Okay. Yeah. I mean, comprehensive yeah. school when I was like in my early teens and, you know, I actually ended up stopping because at school it was a kind of popularity competition and they just, they wanted like the most popular yeah. kind of clean cut kids. They didn't, they weren't really interested in what, it wasn't the kind of thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. I didn't want to do little musicals, you know. Or Me whatever. either, yeah. And, yeah, so I ended up joining a, a drama group called Youth Action Theatre, YAT, outside, which is a young, were run by this wonderful man called Eric Yardley. And um, I went there, and also there were lots of girls there. There was a girl there that I really liked, oh. and I ended up going out with a girl and being yeah. with her for years, actually. But they did really ambitious stuff, and they're still going now, you know? Wow. Um, Eric died a few years ago, but his hands are on. So Youth Action Theatre's still going. Um, and I, I, so that's when I was a teenager, when I, was a, I, I became more involved in that. And then um, my, I, I was doing what we call sixth form college, which is just between schools. You finish at 16 yeah. if you're, you know, in London. And when you go to university, possibly about 18 or two years, where you do so, a, a course called FIDAS, Film, English, Drama and Art. Really great little course. Oh, amazing. And this woman, Tina Hurley, because I discovered, I decided I might want to audition for drama school. And, and then I found out that you needed to pay for it. Yeah. And I was poor. My mum didn't have any money. I didn't know. Yeah, it's like, like 150 open. pounds, right? Yeah, so like, well, at yeah. the time it was yeah. like 30 or whatever, but times, if you wanted to audition for four or five, I, I didn't have a mum I could say, by the way, can I have to? She didn't have. Yeah. 
money, you know. So my teacher lent me the money. Wow. She, she lent me the money to audition and I, I got into a couple of them. I had a couple of bad. <laughs> I, Do you remember I, the other one? Because you, you went to Central, right? Yeah, I went to Central. I got into East 15, which I was very into the idea of method schools because that was the thing that I was reading up on Stanislavski. And I figured yeah, I, I did Strasbourg at NYU. Yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. There's not such, um, you know... Uh, but Central's like the Yale of, of the UK. The oh, whole no, there's, there's lots of them that would say yeah. that. I mean, yeah. you know, I'd say RADA. Central is certainly respectable, but but it's, it's considered traditional. I realise now that it was very good for me because it kind of goes down the middle and there's room for lots of different kind of actors to find their way. Whereas when I was there, I discovered about the drama center, which is really hardcore method and, you know, wonderful, quite yeah. intense. And if you'd asked me then if I could have changed, I probably would have. But I think looking back now, I think it was good because I was, they weren't really teaching us method. But on the side, if you wanted to work on that, if, you, if that was your interest, they weren't going to stop you. So you, you could know? cultivate your own curriculum. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. I've grown up to realize grown up i mean you know in the in the since i've been in the business my opinion is that there is no right way and no wrong way and you can only really see someone's um technique or, or someone's system yeah if their work is mediocre yeah all bad actors look the same whether they're method bad or you know they might manifest a different all really really good actors are similarly really really good yeah. you can only see the training with the middle ones, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> fascinating that you say that. Whatever the training is, then something's going fucking wrong. As far as yeah. I if it's a case of you can see the projection or you can see the kind of all of this, it's it's a load of wank, you know. And I've worked with all kinds of different actors, and the only difference you feel is whether they're engaged or not. The rest yeah. is none of your business, I think. Yeah, totally. And do you think, you know, when you got there, going back to like how you kind of dissipated from whatever the equivalent of high school was that this central speech and being able to have a curriculum that you were interested in and doing no, something that actually it's I'd, I'd had a, a problem of being a truant, a truant for you. Oh, <laughs> me too. And, uh, <laughs> we should have met years ago. <laughs> a, bit of a, a bit of a reprobate, but a bit of a truant too. I mean, again, for probably quite complex reasons. Yeah. Um, and when I found, I got to central and, um, I still had all the old habits. It yeah, took me yeah. a while. I, 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 t I ended up getting a bit of a scare, you know, that they, they, need, they gave me a bit of a talking to because I was like, I think what it was, in the same way that I said, I actually discovered that I had a bit of a fear of rehearsal when I was at Central because I'd had a couple of experiences before of auditioning or reading something for the first time and something happening. Yeah. The first time I ever did it. Totally. And then having a fear that that would never come back. Losing the magic and trying to recreate something. Yeah. And, yeah. That, fear, and that fear turned out to be true because anxiety will do that. Yeah. I had an anxiety that uh, of, of letting something bubble up too soon and yeah. having it, because that's all I'd experienced it before. I'd only ever act, I'd done two performances of something. And yeah. I had a lot of experience of the first night being great and the second night being shit. So I'd, yeah. I, so I was late and I didn't do my work and I didn't, and it took me a long time to realize it was laziness is sometimes fear in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly was in my case. 
Well, yeah. laziness in my case is fear in disguise and a little bit of laziness as well. Yeah, <laughs> touche. Mine was alcoholism <laughs> and drug addiction. But yeah, that's yeah. A, yeah. Well, I had a go at that too. Yeah, Jeff. yeah. Me Four years. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's another manifestation of it yeah. as well. You yeah, know. yeah. Um, you know, because it's about fear of avoiding the actual and thing. And getting out of here and, and, yeah, and experiencing, exactly. you know. Exactly, exactly. Worrying about the shit you've got no control of. Yeah. Could. Wanted to control more of the things we can't control. And, and, no, and so... Exactly. Talk to me when you when you got that talking to was was there a moment in Rufus's mind where it was like I'm gonna fuck this up it's time to get it together or were yes. you still it did yes I mean wow. it took you know it's never it's you know if you're doing a movie it would be an overnight thing in real life it's always a little bit more messy than that but yes um, you know because I, I I don't know I think that that led me to nearly throw it away you know yeah. and it took me a long time it took me um longer than with a lot of people to really land in myself to tell you the truth i think it's taken me into my 40s to really land in myself because when i left drama school i think a lot of it with me was the i was kind of a a, a round child i was yeah. not an attractive child i um I actually, I should have been pleased about this, looked a bit like a cross, someone once said, between Charles Lawton and Peter Ustinov. <laughs> <laughs> My heroes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wrong heroes. Yeah. You could have edged further towards David Bowie or with a little bit of Elvis. But, um, well, that's so interesting because I always know you as this dashing, handsome devil, you know, like, what did you grow into your own later? You felt like, yeah, like no, all I, this definitely did. I definitely did. Um, but again, I think that, you know, when I was a, a child, definitely when I was an early teenager, I was kind of round and pop eyed and kind of, you know, I wasn't and I had weird, I dyed my hair orange, I, you know, I wasn't yeah. like, I wasn't a, a guy that girls were into, you know, yeah. and I had made my peace with that. I had personality. You yeah. Know? And, and you were then, humbled, it sounds like. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, not for one of trying. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and when I was in my teens, I started to kind of change. And then people ended up changing towards me. And I found myself accepted or wanted by the group that I had decided I despised. And I found myself in the middle. So I, I, for a long time, I was, had a very complicated relationship towards the way I looked because I felt like um, I was wearing a mask, yeah. like I was an imposter. Yeah. But that if it slipped, people would go, Ugh, you know. So when I started off acting, I wasn't very comfortable playing people who were supposed to be what people thought I looked like. Yeah. I felt I had so much more to offer that wasn't, it was like being pushed into a ring with both my hands tied behind my back because I had so much to offer, but it wasn't really represented by the kind of po-faced romantic leads that people thought I suddenly told me that I should be playing. Yeah. It's taken me a few years to not worry about all that and realize that you can smuggle stuff through, you know, and that I was lucky. So, so it things was like confusing. It was confusing for me when I first went into the professional world when people said, oh, you're this because of this. And it, I had to adapt my acting because I was only really used to playing hunchbacks and Latvian waiters and 90-year-olds, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. well, I'd never played myself as a kind of available, open-hearted young man. I just, I, 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 
you know, if, if you could have given me a limp, I might have pulled it off. But for a long time, it, you know, it was just a battle with anxiety. I yeah, yeah, of course, as we all have. And and do you feel like I don't know Zorro or A Knight's Tale was your first experience of really going in and having to accept that dashing, handsome, you know? No, no, it was immediate. Like I immediately, you know, um, all the the only jobs that came my actually no. When I first started my my original career actually represented the kind of career I thought I'd have. I played a heroin addict. In Dirty Weekend? No, no. Oh. We're in the same territory. That's it's yeah. interesting you made the mistake because there's a, I played a heroin addict with Patsy Kenzie in a film called 21. Okay. A Scottish heroin addict, okay? Then I played a telephone sex pest who I believed had had a kind of psychotic break in Dirty Weekend. I played... Um, a working class Dublin bus driver in Man of No Importance. I played Mark Gertler, the Jewish painter. I played, you know, these were all disparate, interesting, kind of semi-character roles. Yeah, character for, for sure. And yeah. then success of a kind started to narrow those things down for me. Like Middlemarch, I would say, where I was playing a young man yeah. who looked like me. And it was like a great role, but... Um, when I first started off, oh, my first ever theatre roles, I had two at the same time. I played Denitza, the kind of slightly dangerous Franciscan friar in The Royal Hunt of the Sun. And I played Gethin Price in a play called Comedians, who was a skinhead comedian who wow. was like very, very hardcore and like wanted to channel hatred. These were like all really disparate that, you know, that, that's the kind of work that I've always wanted to do. Yeah, know? me too. Same. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, yeah. so you're like, you know, and I'm actually more free playing parts like that yeah. than I was originally playing what people thought I was like. Because you get into this thing of, okay, so what do you think I'm like? You know, um, it, those are the kind of, these are kind of, they're kind of youthful struggles. I don't give a fuck now. But that's yeah. because I went through kind of, you've got to find your way through that. And, and as you started to, you know, work your way through the UK and build up, when did the American kind of studios start showing interest in you? What, what was the activation in the project that like, you know, because I feel like it really happened for you and you just had all those like nineties and 2000 movies, you know, that, yeah, that I, I don't know. I think middle March um, was a TV show that because it was on PBS, like ah. what I've done, I think that got me known there. Um, and then 21 was a film that though it didn't really, you know, play anywhere. It was at Sundance and people saw me in that. So I was going back and forth to Los Angeles it oh, you were? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I went for a PBS tour and I went, you know, like, you know, for a day or so. So I'd met people in Los Angeles. don't know what it was, but I was, I was doing English films. For me, it was Dark City, really, I think. I got two jobs and I did them back to back, neither of which were hits. Mm. Dark City, which is now regarded as, a, you know, an interesting and a cult film. But at the time because it was difficult to quantify, i.e. difficult to sell. Right. You know, if you'd seen the trailers at the time, you'd think it was a Bruce Willis film, except tragically missing Bruce Willis. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, they did, you know, it's very hard to sell something that's kind of esoteric and kind of German expressionist like that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So you had this kind of, in a world, kind of um, voiceover. Like, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Well, the problem with a thing like that is you hook in a load of people who aren't going to like it. Yeah. 
you know, so that and Dangerous Beauty, which was originally called The Honest Courtesan, which still irritates me that they got rid of that title. Yeah, what a great, it sounds like a great band too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I remember like the one of the executives explaining to, to my agent said, I said, why change it from The Honest Courtesan, which was the name of the book it's based on, to Dangerous Beauty? And they said, they're worried that people will mix up courtesan with courtesan. And I said at the time, learn a fucking word. Yeah, it's... It's like saying, what's your name? Oh, no, I can't learn a new name. Yeah. Can your name be John? I mean... Art is supposed to challenge you, you know what I mean? Like in... in well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Or it, oh, it was at one time. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I did those two, which started me and kind of slowed me down at the same time. Because, mm. you know, neither of them were hits. It kind of got me known, but it didn't lead. This one of the eventual advantages in terms of my me as an actor and also me as a kind of successfully operating human is the fact that in my case, success has come and gone in drips and drabs with a kind of equal oscillation over the years. That there has never been a one big moment and then plain sailing there's yeah. been okay things are good oh they're not so oh things are easy things are less easy things are, you know and i suppose in terms of people generally knowing who i am that's slowly gone up but it's never really you know i'd say every four or five years the pattern's pretty much the same you Interesting. know that, that i've just the difference now is i've decided not to sweat it too much is that as I said, when I do something that should that I would expect will change the way I'm perceived, mm. it just means unemployment until I'm offered another upper class baddie. Yeah. And how long that takes will be a measure of how much how tempted I am to do it or not. But the big difference for me in terms of my happiness is deciding not to give a fuck about yeah. about what people who I don't care about think. And unfortunately, one of the com complex things is in our business, our fates can be in the hands of people whose opinions we don't care about, but we, All the time. But we need to. So I realized that, that at one point I was obs not obsessing with, but concerned, certainly overly concerned with what a certain group of people thought of what kind of actor I was, because it seemed to be affecting me. Yeah. And then I realized that I wasn't worried about people who I respected. Because people I respected, I kind of feel they get what I do, you know. They knew might, better. Might not necessarily result in work. Yeah. But I don't worry about what they think. Yeah. I was worried expressly and specifically with the opinions of people whose opinions I don't give a fuck about. Yeah. Yeah. I totally that understand. Was my, that was my thing, you know. Yeah. And the realization that, you know what, it doesn't make any difference because one of the things that's happened with me is I've become very attached to a sense of being a slight outsider. And do you think that's buoyed you in a lot of ways? That's you know, I mean. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. But I don't want to throw it away. And one of the, you know, I don't want to be the person who... I've, I've got used to, um, you know, making my own little place, mm. being dogged about how I work and occasionally getting a bit of luck, whatever. But when the people 
or when the world that I felt wasn't fully embracing of me suddenly welcomes me in, I don't want to chuck my food tray over my shoulder and go and sit with the mean girls. Yeah. I think fuck them. Yeah, fuck <laughs> I them. I totally that. agree. I just mean I don't want to throw away what I've gained. And what I've yeah. gained is a sense of proportion that I've done work that I really believe in that has not been so recognized. Yeah. And I've done work that I know wasn't Ish. great worth, but yeah. I knew that people would think it was great. Yeah. And sometimes I'm, I may feel like underpraised, but sometimes I feel overpraised. Yeah. You know, so I think actually, if you pull the camera back far enough, I think it's about right as long as I don't obsess with the details. Fascinating. You know, um, so what I'm concerned with is as now that people I seem to be getting the kind of jobs, getting kind of interested in the world that I wanted to be in, not to throw away the lessons that I learned in, in a little bit of isolation. Well, like going back early on to like, you know, having films like, you know, A Knight's Tale that were, were global, I think, at least in America, they were huge and, and Zorro, you know what I mean? Like those kind of films at that point where you, Rufus, like, okay, I, I can work in America as much as I can in the UK and I'd like to balance both or not, was it? Not really, because with bad guys, it's a different kind of game that you don't they don't seem to be the same kind of commodity. <laughs> I mean, mm. I remember when, um, um, you know, and it's important to have perspective about it, but you know, that, that usually um, there are types of roles that, that people see as the actors in roles. You think, oh, we can utilize that person. Suddenly you see them in everything else. Yeah. It's not often bad guys. Yeah. That the problem with being offered bad guy after bad guy is that the person who sees you, a director who sees you as a bad guy and wants to employ you as a bad guy, is generally not very bright, not very good. Yeah. Because smart people don't want to use someone who's just done it. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. So if you're not careful, even if you are, um, what happens is that you play, if you play nothing but bad guys, in my experience, they become less and less well-defined. Yeah. Working with, you know, unless you wait a good few years in between. So I, you know, it's very, I, I will, I'll happily play other roles like that if they're good enough. And most of the time they're just not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so you started getting, uh, I sounds like selective, you know, because you wanted to no, do I've always thing. been selective. The yeah. problem is, I, in my experience, I would be selective and think the next thing has to be good, and I would wait so long that I would end up desperate, and I'd have to end up accepting something as a bad guy potentially. Well, well not that a bad yeah. guy, but something that wasn't as good as the not good enough stuff that I was turning down, because that works if if the good stuff is coming in, but slowly. Yeah. And there have been periods when it just isn't, and that's what it's the same with most people. So you, in the end, you've got to live in the real world. Like, okay, let's. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you know, in an ideal world, great script, great part, great cast, great director. And let's say if money or location is one of those, it cannot be one of the deciding factors as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Two of those is enough to take something, you know, like a good part and a good script. Yeah. Um, all five is a very, very, very rare thing. I've only yeah. come across it maybe once or twice in my life. Wow. Right? Yeah. Once very recently, you know, once with the father, which I've just done. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can't have everything. And it's like, if I wanted to wait for that, I just wouldn't ever work. Yeah. 
totally. Because I, I, I wouldn't have worked until the father came, and the father wouldn't have come because I'd never. I yeah, <laughs> totally. You know. So you, if I can, if I can, if I can open some, if I can approach something uncynically, because whether you whether something fails or succeeds, or whether you fail or succeed, is not in your hands. Yeah, it's not. What is in your hands is whether you're cynical about something. I've always believed that I can do my best because I'm not a cynic. Yeah, I'm not about my work. I really care about it. I've never been, I'll just do this for the money. Because actually, those times when I've been tempted to be a prostitute, yeah, I'm not very good at it. I, yeah. I'll accidentally pick a free one without realizing, you know. Yeah. Sometimes I'm giving a freebie in an alley. When I'm trying to find an alley. <laughs> I need you to make my money here. <laughs> what do you mean it's free? Yeah. Um, I'm just not a good whore. Yeah. It's not that I'm too moral. I just yeah. don't have the, the, the apparatus to choose my clients very well, you know, so I may as well. But, um, so then but, when 10 years went by and, and this Tom Stoppard play came back and you did it in London, was that just, just an amazing moment in your life to have a creatively, you know, was that the right director, right script, right moment, right theater? Was that well, it, it, definitely, it definitely was. It definitely was. And, you know, I don't I would like to go into this in detail in interviews, but I'd recently stopped drinking. It was my first kind of... I'm four years sober, you know? so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and congratulations. Was, thank you. And yeah. that was really extraordinary, very important for me, that the first job I'd done without with a change in that kind of lifestyle had such an enormous profound effect on me in my life, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I was inc incredibly yeah. grateful. And, you know, I, I try to be grateful for everything now. Yeah. Um, as I say, I'm all these things that I got, that I struggled with in the past, I was lucky to have. It yeah. doesn't mean the struggle didn't happen. You know, yeah. a lot of it is just about how you see yourself, how you come to terms with being an adult and your place in the world and who you are. And, you know, I, I was a, probably more confused than most because of my childhood. Um, but right now I feel I'm 53 now and I feel really, really happy to be 53. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really, you look great. You know, that I'd always suspected and, and hoped that it would take me a while to fully land in myself now. And, um, and the last few years, I think since I kind of cleaned up my act and, you know, I was lucky enough to have got by pretty well before then actually considering but I do feel like I've just managed to get luckier for it to get deeper, you know, not always reflected in the work, but reflected in it not having to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the best defense you can have against a mediocre career is a good life. Yeah. You know, so I don't need to prove anything to anyone because in the end, when you're trying to prove things to, to someone else, you're really just trying to prove them to yourself. If you can sort that out with yourself, so you're not, using the world as a mirror, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? Um, so now, I, I, if someone sent me a part, a role, there was everything I said 15 years ago I never wanted to play again. If it was a sneering Victorian villain on a horse and all that, if I liked it, I'd fucking do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk so to what? me about, speaking of that, like, Victoria, was that just, like, cool to go from, you know, being this, this, this SS guy that's, you know, a, a character that's, you know, he's human and he's flawed and he's trying yeah, to deal yeah. with, with, you know, spoiler alert, having to deal with the, the right becoming America. And, yeah, yeah. you know, like just having this guy, Lord Melbourne, who's 
who's really just a great guy, you know, it was and just wonderful for me. Yeah. But uh, for you, you know, thank God for Daisy Goodwin who's, who saw that in me because people say, oh, you're good at playing villains. Uh, well, that I mean, that's very flattering, but I think it's because I, those are the parts that I get. <laughs> I know. saw how big your heart was in that role, and I, it warned me. And every oh, time you and Jenna had scenes, I was like, I want to Lord Melbourne to work with. But absolutely, I don't think that's any further. When people saying I'm stretching myself, I'm not stretching myself. I stretch myself just as much when I play anything. Um, yeah. You know, I, for always a stretch, you know, to, to try to get something new out of playing, playing a part that could seem similar to stuff you've done before. But for me, it felt like I was finally allowed to be in my comfort zone again. Yeah. Just like when I'm doing comedy, I'm in my comfort zone. The rest is is um, uh, me trying out stuff. But it, that stuff's easy for me. Yeah, and yeah. it feels funny that it's it, it's. I suppose it's been good for my acting. The fact that what people have considered to be my typecast is something that doesn't come easily to me. Yeah, but yeah. The other stuff does. When I'm doing something like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, or you know or Taming of the Shrew. I don't know if yeah. you ever saw it. Did you ever see I did a thing called um, Shakespeare Retold, where I did... Um, no, I did not get a chance to Shirley see it. Henderson, no, which was a, a BBC um, modern language version of the Taming of the Shrew. So it's been rewritten, me and Shirley Henderson. And my character, Petruchio, is um, kind of... He likes to, to wear skirts and, you know, um, yeah. and he's a bit of an alcoholic and he, you know, and she's a conservative politician. And it's a really, you know, but that was like pretty madcap comedy. These are the times when I'm comfortable. The rest of the time, it's a little bit more like work. Yeah. So I, I've always considered that my secret weapon was the stuff that I never get a chance to do is my strong point. So hopefully, I'm still hoping as I get older, I'll get more chance to do that. You, know? you will. I mean, I've, man, Victoria blew me away. I just love seeing you in that. And I wanted more and more. And, you know, I know they couldn't end up together because of history dictated Albert. But, oh. you know, <laughs> Rocket Hall, you know, had to had to take you for the win. But no, I love I love playing it. But at the same time, they, they were trying to make an effort very flatteringly to kind of keep me around and bring me back. And I was very resistant to that. The whole point for me of doing it was that character had a brief life. Yeah. You know? And he, and he died of, young, correct? Yes. But yeah. I don't mean that, but the story had a brief life. It had, yeah. it had agency and power and vim to it only because of that brief crossover of him at that age and her in that age. You know, that's when it was electric. Yeah. I, I told them, I don't keep me around as a fucking magic granny. At the yeah, 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 yeah. I don't really like the Queen Latifah <laughs> and dispense advice every, you know, every Christmas. I was like, no, I want to, <laughs> I want to die. I want, I want to, to, you know, and at the end, they, they kind of left it open by not. Yeah, I saw it. that. They didn't fully. I was, I was pissed off about that. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. I was because. I know, you know, they filmed it in such a way to make it clear that I was dead because I wanted to make it clear. Yeah. And then they hedged it. I was never going to come back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, still a lo lovely job. But well, speaking of historical, you know, we we talked about it because I was up for it. Talking to me about playing Alexander Hamilton was that a fun experience for you? No. <laughs> Interesting. Talk to me about that. I, well, no, it was fun because I was working with amazing actors. Yeah. But. No, I, I got that script and I said, I don't like this version of Alexander Hamilton. So I'm not that interested because he'd been relegated to a kind of conniving villain, you know, yeah. 
Um, really one-dimensional, I thought. Uh, especially once I'd read, I think, Ron Chernow's book about him. There's like such a fascinating character. Yeah. And they said, no, 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 you misunderstand. It's going to have a major rewrite. Major rewrite. And it's going to, all the things you're talking about are going to be there. And I went, really? Yep. And I said, well, wow, okay. In that case, yes. And I waited six months for the major rewrite, even until I was in Richmond, Virginia, two days before filming, saying, when's it coming in? Yeah. And I was bullshitted. And on the day, on the night before, the rewrite came in and they just cut it by half. So I, nothing wrong with the role. Yeah. But for me, it's like when Alexander Hamilton became such a phenomenon, people say, oh, you're the other one. I always like to say, I'm the shit one. <laughs> <laughs> Not to win Manuel, but... but. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, it, it, you know, it was a nice role and wonderful to, to be in that. Yeah. Wonderful to work with that company. But... How did you like Richmond, at least? That's where I grew up. Oh, I loved it. I really yeah. loved being there. I loved all that. But I did feel like I'd been slightly hoodwinked into yeah, that. Yeah. That, because I didn't, especially at the time, I really didn't want to be playing some, what was effectively, not one note, but in terms of that, how multi-layered and multifaceted all the characters were, he was a, he was a device. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I was reassured out of that. And this well, is that fucking pisses habit. me off. So when I think of that, I just <laughs> yeah. I, I well, mean, that, the show itself is great, but I do think you know it does piss me off when I think about it. I uh, that that upsets me. Well, talk to me, you know, because you did forty episodes of the show. You know, between you know when that ended and kind of the early two thousand mid two thousands, it started as the paradigm shift happened, where you know the movies that we used to love stopped getting made, and television kind of became the new long form narrative. And it just started being spectacle-driven Marvel movies yeah. and intellectual property. What was yeah. for you during those years? Were you trying to stay away from those kind of things and and focus no, on the good? I wasn't trying to stay away from those kind of things. I couldn't get anywhere near them. I'll join you in sneering about them, but if if, if they were you no, know, yeah, what I mean when people say, "Oh, you should be in those Harry Potters," like, "Oh, oh, should I?" <laughs> I'll have a word with them. Yeah, I'll um, call JK right now. Yeah, like I had certainly, you know, like uh, you think I'd refuse to do things like that, but do Abraham Lincoln Vampire? <laughs> oh my god, I love you, dude. <laughs> um, so no, I'd I'd leap at something like that. Of course I would, because that doesn't have to be everything you do, but it, it would seem to make things easier for you. And anyway, I, I think they're fun, but they're not, you know, then they're, they're not the same as other things. You know, for me. Um, it's just so happy the thing did the thing that did come my way yeah. <clears throat> was Man in the High Castle, and was I, there I, trepidation I, being that and it could be perceived as a villain even though it's a three dimensional world. Yeah, yeah. I was it's two jobs at the same time. One was the leader of the Jews and killing Jesus, Caiaphas, who in that story was the bad guy. Yeah. The other one, and they were both um, scot free, Ridley Scott's company. One bad guy who was the leader of the Jews and one bad guy who was the leader of the Nazis. <laughs> and I thought, I had a long think about it because, you know, things come through and I just think, oh, really? And yeah. yet all of the things I could play, my instinct was, okay. And I had a long think about it and I talked with someone whose opinion I value very much and decided that I would do both because there's something really so funny 
And so, like, I love this. I'm getting on a plane, having finished the pilot, to go and play Caiaphas, the leader of the Jews, yeah. which is what I did uh, two days later. But I decided to take the role of John Smith and to try to fashion it into the embodiment of what my struggle is. Yeah. To show... In a meta way. Inside that belies that, that trapped inside a bad guy is a potential good guy and as is the case of vice versa and the struggle of those four years with all the, the changing writers and changing showrunners yeah was to push the character into being something else which yeah. i succeeded up until the end in doing when they won but you know so i basically as much as i could took control of of who my character was and i didn't win every battle but i pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed because scripts would come in in which he was a one-note bad guy and i would fight yeah. and i would fight and i would fight and ask for rewrites and push and push until eventually they started to take on my conception of the role but then of course there'd be a changing regime and i would have the same battle over and over again with and a new the team final season, yeah in the final season, it, it transpired that the new regime considered their job, I think, this is my theory, to refute my idea of the character. Oh, they conspired against you. Well, I don't yeah. even know if it was as Machiavellian as that, but I just yeah. think that when you have people who don't agree that all people are grey. and yeah. So that's why in the end it feels like, I, I kind of lost the battle in the end. Yeah that it feels like the final episode of the show proves that he was just evil all along. Which is yeah, a, which is a real bummer. Yeah. I, I thought that every, every episode the whole time and managed not to be beaten, but at the end, there's nothing I could do. Yeah. But yeah. still, I'm very, very proud of the work. And you should be. It's, it's superb. It's outstanding. And yeah. I, oh, I, I cared you. for I him. Even, and I'm not, I'm, I don't even disrespect the people, you know, the very, very talented people. It's just, this is what you have. It's I, the game. When we came to the end of it, I don't I can't have the last word on the character. And, you know, yeah. I was allowed to play and was given a lot of freedom and leeway and cooperation and help, you know, yeah. at the same time, it was uh, a struggle, but it was really, it, it was um, really satisfying. And I'm very, very proud of it. It was such excellent work, brother. And it inspired me so much. And, you know, seeing that coupled with Victoria and everything else you've been doing, Agatha Christie, it's, you're, you're, you're truly one of the best in the world. And, 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 I think you're hitting this amazing stride right now, which is why I'm going to call Barbara Broccoli after this and get you to be Bond because you, you so deserve it to be that yeah, righteous. I, <laughs> I mean, the weird thing is, as you know, as, as I said before, that, you know, I'm just the right age to be the last Bond. Um, oh, <laughs> or, yeah. But yeah. Um, I, yes, I'm, or I'm, I'm the, just coming up to the perfect age to be the Bond before last, probably. But when I was younger, this is, you know, talking about, being comfortable with yourself. And I never yeah. consider myself to be the Bond type because I think one of this, my strengths is the, the fat boy, the bit of the bit, not being a hundred percent one thing, being you yeah. know, the little bit of irregularity, the fact that I can look weird from summer. If I want to go ugly, I can really do it. You know, that I'm not just one thing. And I don't think I have that innate physical, thing that bonds need i have lots of other stuff but it's good to know what you think you have or not but actually to tell you the truth i'm a better i'm a better too old to play bond bond than i was 
a Bond when I was young enough. <laughs> I know I've grown into someone that looks like they should have. Yeah. But when I was younger, I didn't. I, sh I didn't look like that. Touché. You know? So Touché. I suppose, you know, I'm very lucky that I'm kind of, that that's the way, you know, that I, I still look like it would have been a possibility. But when I was young, I just don't think I was the type, actually. And I'd always consider myself like 008 and a half or a bad guy or something. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Jump at. I just think, I'm, I just don't think it's a natural fit. You know. Well, I I always believe in you, and I, I think one of the ways you'll you'll get involved in one of those. I'm I'm going to make I'd sure of it. To. One way but, or another. I'm not I, saying bonds or nothing. <laughs> yeah. no bond. Let's talk, talk about other things. Talk to me. You know the the beauty of of being you know in the U.S. and in the U.K. I I love that you're able to work in both. Is that something that's always been imperative to you to balance? You know. Yeah, like, I mean, I actually I came here years ago. You know, I told you after I did rock and roll, I didn't work for a long time. I ended up doing um, a Jerry Bruckheimer show. Um, Which one was that? 11th hour. Oh, I remember that one. <laughs> I didn't even know what the word procedural meant, but I knew that they didn't. I do know that they didn't mention that fucking word when we met. <laughs> and I very quickly realized, again, it was an example of working with really lovely people. And Marley Shelton, who I was working with, I adored. And the crew were fantastic. But I really learned what I wasn't. That. yeah and you know i had i was broke and you know people said to me oh you know i think you'll find even though you have trepidation i think you'll find even though the writing isn't you know you're struggling with the writing and you know that you'll get used to that level of recognition and that level of money and you'll decide you want to keep it and i was very gratified to discover that that did not happen that towards the end you know, the work was what, what it was, but I wanted to escape. And I thought if I could have my debts back and be a free agent, I'd do it at a shop because it just didn't suit me. I yeah. felt trapped. Um, you know, who knows if my attitude might be different now if yeah. something like that came up. The world has changed, but at the time, it just wasn't a great role. It wasn't the writing. It, it, it didn't, it, it, was, it, it wasn't satisfying enough. If it had been a better role for me, but it was basically pushing story. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and anyway, at the end, when I was on that job, I met someone. So at the end of it, I stayed because I was in a relationship. It wasn't for oh. career. We split up now and I have a kid and I have a new girlfriend. But Beautiful. the great thing about having unpacked in Los Angeles, not consciously moving here, but just kind of ending up staying here. Yeah. It's that my work started to bubble up in England. Wow. In a way that it hadn't been when I was living in England. How ironic. So you're yeah, working there now more than you have. Yeah, probably. I'm not sure if it's irony or just human nature that the absence creates a kind of thing. Yeah, know? yeah. And by the same token, I learned quite quickly to tell them here that I, that I live in England whenever they ask. I, oh, I heard, you know, poor Johnny Depp just lost a role, so I'll have to call, you know, Warner Brothers for you right now. It's already been mad. But, um, yeah, so I've actually since then done, until COVID struck, done more theatre, more TV and more English films in that period than I did in the same period when I was living in England. Wow. So I go back and forth. So it's ideal for me. Do you, any chance, you know, I, I, I don't know when the world will get to do this again, but that, you know, we might see another Rufus Sewell Broadway outing. I would love it as far as, you know, weirdly enough, the reading material I've been doing recently has just been reading about theatre. I, I wasn't even consciously doing it, but I keep on I'm reading about, um, 
the Actors Studio at the moment, and I was reading about the Mercury Theatre before, and I just think about it all the time. The reason I haven't done a play in a while, even before COVID, is I haven't, nothing great has been offered. I, yeah. I, I finished, the last play I did, Art, deciding that I'd do a play every year, yeah, if I could, but I don't know, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting for something to come along. You know, yeah. it's even, you know I need to read a play, because it's logistically quite complicated. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. I need to read a play and it'd be, oh, fuck, I'm doing this. Yeah. That is, oh, that's what needs to happen. <laughs> when you get with like Edna Walsh, do something weird and. Yeah, and, and no, but those are the things. I'm yeah. not into commercial theater. I want to do new Me either. Yeah. Like small thing. You know, it's like, it needs to be really something. It needs to be really exciting. And I've done a number of ensembles. I'd like to do something a bit more than that. You yeah. Know? Almost like um, a one-man show would be so cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, my greatest asset is my availability. Is my yeah. <laughs> well, I got two final questions for you, Rufus. It's it's from the bottom of my heart, man. I could talk to you for hours. I hope you come back one day. I'd love to do this again and, and just... Well, I hope I one day have something else to say. Oh, no, you got so much to say. It means the world to me. And uh, I, I got some gifts for you. I'll, I'll, I'll contact your rep and send them your way. But uh, final questions here. For, you know, all the young, wide-eyed Rufuses that are kind of similar to me, anti-establishment and figuring themselves out in, in the middle of a pandemic, any words of advice for, the, for those actors out there that are trying to kind of figure out the, the way around this fucking madness that is the show business that we live in in 2021? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think this is advice that even if it doesn't get you a job, it'll, it'll preserve you. I think... Um, you can't transform yourself into what you think people want you to be, you know, as an example, you know, like for me, like discovering, I'm just not a gifted prostitute. Those that are (laughs) are already prostitutes. That's gotta be the title of your memoir. (laughs) Not make it courtesan. The um, the unpaid whore. Um, that everything about you which is, I've said this before, but everything about you which stops you being the stock castable cutout yeah. is who you are. Yeah. And in the same way, the, the reason that people become blank when they fill in their wrinkles is because the wrinkles are the places in your face that show who you are right the wrinkles are the little rivulets that time has built because that's where your emotions the rivers that they run in you block those yeah that's it and i think it's the same with all of this because it's so tempting like you know oh i'm a bit this i'm a bit that i'm not enough this i'm not enough that yes that is true and it might stop you getting roles yeah early on when people just see you as a generic type i mean you can experiment with holding them back but don't worry about trying to turn yourself into something else it doesn't mean that you're certainly going to work but it, you know you'll yeah you'll stay you'll stay a bit more sane and you'll be a better human for it um, yeah a better human and a better human can mean a better actor usually yeah, yeah. and 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 final question you know what it's a it's a fucking weird time to be alive with this crazy fascist that we have that's hopefully going to be hopefully out, ousted oh. You know, I mean, uh, just I murdered or something. Please, at this point, that's my words, not yours. But uh, just so yeah, tired the of the problem is what, what that would do to the followers, you know. Yeah, God. Oh, God. Speaking of I'd, man I'd in the high castle. Before, I'd said a long, healthy life in prison. 
Yeah, exactly. Rotting there. But what's what's keeping you inspired, brother? Um small things. Um simple things. I mean, you know, as the key to my later acquired happiness is mundanity, actually. Simple things. I used to think I was a lot more rock and roll than I was. It's, it's, it's similar, <laughs> with of, similar with a lot of um, ex-drinkers. This is the idea. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I'm punk rock. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. But actually, the reason I love theater is I love going to the same place every day. Touche. Yeah. <laughs> the, the office worker in me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, actually, one big thing is it, the difference in my happiness since at least the election, even though I know that shit's still, you know, crazy. Yeah. I'm not checking. I'm not checking all the time. Me too. You know, and I think it's just a matter of keeping your head down and concentrating on the simple things, you know, yeah. and you, like your family and, the, and your friends and stuff. I mean, yeah. maybe stay away from the Trumpy uncles. Yeah. Oh, for a while. Yeah, thankfully we're not going to be doing Thanksgiving this year, so we'll not see those Trumpy uncles. I feel. I feel. <laughs> Tell them to go fuck themselves. But uh, well, Rufus Sewell, I have so much love for you, brother. You you truly changed my life, man, and and you're one of the finest actors and finest gentlemen I've I've met in my life, and I appreciate your your openness and your honesty and just you opening up and giving back about your journey. And I'd love to to do this again someday, maybe over a cup of coffee and, and have some few more laughs, brother. Yeah, I'd love to, mate. Thank yeah. you. Very, very flattering. It's so nice of you to say. It's been nice. Yeah. All right. I got so much love for you, man. I hope you have a great day and enjoy Absolutely. the time with your family. All right? Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.